I, I love the fact that this building is different than every other building in the area because this is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. I've mentioned before that we have the joy of entering into this place knowing that we can put the shield down for a little bit and rather than having to defend ourselves, we can open ourselves up because we know that what the Lord is going to give us is going to nourish us. It's going to encourage us and bless us. And today you have encouraged and blessed myself and my wife and our pastoral staff. We so covet your prayers and I'm so grateful that God allows me to live out my call in the culture of grace assembly and and I'm so grateful to God for that I recognize that it's almost noon but I have a word from the Lord and if you would be patient would you let me fly over it real quick and just bring out some important points that I think are going to be necessary for us the title of my message today we started a series last week on what is truth how do we face our culture uh, and have real answers for why we believe what we believe. And today the title of this message is, Why Should I Believe the Bible? Have any of you ever had anybody ask you that? Uh, as it relates to you begin to talk to them about the things that are important to you and they just finally stop and say, well, why should I believe the Bible? I believe that there are some important reasons that we need to be able to give for why the Bible is believable. Last week when Cindy and I returned from a wedding, I flew into Syracuse and I grabbed our suitcases and I told her, why don't you just sit on this bench? I'm going to run out to the parking lot. I'll grab the car. It's night. I don't want you walking in the dark. I'll be right back. And within five minutes, I drove back around and she was sitting on this park bench and there was a, a young lady that was from South Korea that was sitting there with her and the young lady had a Bible open and it was pointing to Cindy in scriptures. And, and as I pulled up, I thought, well, this ought to be interesting. So I pulled up close and rolled down my window to discover that this young South Korean woman was really intently witnessing to Cindy uh, about the importance of, of not just knowing Jesus, but studying the Word and knowing the truth of the Word. And, and as I'm sitting there for about five minutes, this young lady was not letting her go. I finally jumped out, grabbed the suitcases, threw in the back as the police was about to come and say, you need to leave now. And, and finally, Cindy said to her, I appreciate everything you've said. I believe it. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and, and as I introduced myself to the young lady, she told me, I just want her to know the truth. And I thought, I wish that we all had that kind of zeal. So as we talk about what is truth, we've been focusing on the Bible, which is the foundation of truth as we believe in Jesus. And so the questions that we're going to ask this morning are this, can we trust the Bible and why should I believe the Bible? If you have talked to non-Christians often enough, you recognize that at some point this question will come to you because they want to know that what you are standing on as the foundation of your belief and foundation of your life is something that is foundationable to build on. They want to know why is it truth. And so this morning, very quickly, I'd like to start with point number one. What does the Bible say about itself? There is a claim that it makes, and we find this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, when the Apostle Paul writes, and he says this, all Scripture. Now, we need to understand that when Paul is writing all Scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament primarily. This is what he would have known. He says, all Scripture is God-breathed. That word is sometimes translated to us as inspired, or it has to do with the breath or the Spirit of God breathing thoughts, words, and intent into the heart of people. And so what we recognize quickly is you cannot separate the Word of God from the Spirit of God, because the Word of God came from the heart and the essence of the Holy Spirit. 
And you cannot separate those things. It just, uh, just the aspect of, of people writing off the cuff saying, you know, there, there's all kind of people out there that believe that the Bible was written by a bunch of people that were smoking pot. Or they believe that it was written by a bunch of people that were trying to manipulate other people with the way they thought or guilting people into a certain behavior. But this indicates to us that this did not have a strange origin, but it came from the heart and the, the Spirit of the Lord as He laid it upon people's heart. So it becomes God's heart and mind to us. And then he goes on in this and he said, there are four amazing verbs that he used. He said, it is important, it is profitable to us for teaching. In other words, that's what we need to believe. For rebuking, that's what we need to stop doing. For correcting, that's what we need to start doing. And for training in righteousness, which means that's what we need to become. So the Spirit breathe, Word of God, the Bible says about itself, is profitable for these things within our life. To believe, stop doing, start doing, and who are we are to become. And the Scripture addresses all these things in our life. That is why we who are Christ followers believe that the Bible is the foundation of our faith and of our conduct. And as a result of that, the Spirit of the Lord goes on to say that because He has breathed His Word to us and it does these four things, the result is that we, who are followers of Jesus Christ, may be thoroughly equipped. I love that term, thoroughly equipped, because many people in the church today do not feel equipped in order to, to be able to share their faith. Many people feel like, I don't do it because I don't know what to say, I don't know the questions that are coming. But the Word of God says that if we will dive into this, that you will be thoroughly equipped for every good work, everything that would be required of you, all of life's challenges, everything that God needs in you to make a difference in your world. God has breathed His Word into you to make you ready and complete for the life that He wants to lead you in and the things that He wants you to know. It still begs the question, what evidence is there that the Bible is trustworthy? What evidence is there that the Bible is trustworthy? How do I know that all this is true? If the Bible says that about itself, how do I know then that the Bible has the authority to speak about itself that way? I learned a little acrostic that will help us, I believe, this morning. It was found in Christian Research Institute, and it goes like this, M-A-P-S. I would like you to jot that down in your notes, M-A-P-S, because it's going to help us in providing proof for people that want to know why we believe the Bible is true. The first letter that is represented in this acrostic, M, stands for the word manuscript. Manuscript. We have the manuscripts as evidence which would refer to the early documents of the Bible as it was written, the ancient documents. And what do we know about the manuscripts that might show us that the Bible is a trustworthy book? Well, there were two professors by the name of Kreeft and Teselli from Boston College University that wrote this. The manuscripts that we have, in addition to being old, are also mutually reinforcing and consistent. There are very few discrepancies and no really important ones in all the original manuscripts that we have. They go on to say this. All later discoveries of manuscripts, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, have confirmed rather than refuted previously existing manuscripts in every important case. There is simply no other ancient text in nearly as good a shape as the biblical text. 
So when we hear people wonder and object, they often say, well, if that's the case, then here's my objection to that. The Bible that we have today can't possibly be an adequate representation of what the original said. It's been retranslated so many times that it must have diluted and, and the original message has been lost. So surely it's nothing compared to what the original writers wrote. There was a fascinating and powerful discovery in 1947 by a Bedouin shepherd that was considered among the most important archaeological finds of the 20th century. It was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you have ever heard of those before? Dr. Peter Flint, who is a researcher of the Dead Sea Scrolls, wrote this. The biblical Dead Sea Scrolls are 1,250 years older than the traditional Hebrew Bible, the Masoretic text. We have been using a thousand-year-old text to make our Bibles. We now have scrolls that go back to 250 years before Christ. He further states later on, our conclusion is simply this. The scrolls confirm the accuracy of the biblical text by 99%. The Dead Sea Scrolls have fragments of every Old Testament book in our Bible, plus almost in its entirety the book of Isaiah from the Old Testament. You hear people say, well, there have been all kind of copy errors through the centuries. I want you to know that based on archaeological evidence and those that have studied these scrolls, they state that virtually identical to what we have today are what the Dead Sea Scrolls we found have written. Then we move from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Many of you may have heard of the Christian apologist and, and researcher Josh McDowell. He says this, I believe that there is more evidence for the reliability of the New Testament than for any other ten pieces of classical literature put together. When we begin to look at the New Testament, we recognize that it was, much of it was written within 40 years of the life of Jesus. And so Luke and Paul, in particular in their writing, says, listen, if you don't believe what we wrote, if you don't believe what we have to say about Jesus, many of the eyewitnesses of his resurrection are still alive. Go and talk to them. They will tell you what they have seen, and they will confirm what we have written. If you were going to make something up, you would never make that claim to ask people to go and talk to eyewitnesses. So much of the New Testament as it relates to the life of Jesus were written so close to the actual time of the events that to refute them would be very, very difficult. So our original manuscripts of the New Testament have been validated by secular historians like Josephus and Tacitus and Pliny the Younger. And there is more evidence than any other classical literature of the authenticity and the accuracy of the New Testament than any other document we know. Mark Pinsky wrote an article about scientists in Great Britain that were at the peak of their careers, and there was a time when many of them were coming to know Christ at the same time. And he said, one of the reasons that there is a revival among these scientists is because of what their science is telling them. He said, the other reason is because of the overwhelming, convincing evidence of the authenticity of the New Testament document that we have. It's hard to fight truth. 
So we have in the manuscript evidence, and this was just a quick flyover of something that you could really dig into and spend some time on. In fact, I want to show you a book that I have really grown to love. It is called the Archaeological Study Bible. It's about 12, 1,300 pages, a lot of stuff in here. This particular one is written in the New International Version, and it has almost on every page notes on the bottom that talk about the archaeological discoveries that prove what was written is true. And so if any of you want to really dig into a study of what we are just flying over, I would encourage you, it's not cheap, but it may be very well worth it for those of you that love the science of Scripture, the Archaeological Study Bible. Because the second... Maps is the first one, M. The second letter is archaeology, A. Tonight, I want you to know that we're going to be showing a video from 6 to 6.30, the first half of our prayer meeting tonight, from Dr. Wave Nunley, who is a New Testament historian, teaches at Evangel University, and he put out a video on, on the newest discoveries, things that have happened in just the last three or four years that are convincing proofs of the New Testament. And rather than trying to recalculate all of that into a message, I thought, let's just come, for those of you that are interested, and you can watch this tonight, and then we'll finish the last half hour in prayer, asking that God would take this knowledge and help us to use it well. But that'll be tonight on the newest discoveries that are proving the Bible and archaeology. But the question that we ask is, how does archaeology validate the details of the Bible, such as the names of towns or even so much as archaeology has proven that of all of the kind of tombs that could have been there or that were there, Jesus' tomb had a rolling stone, which was very unusual at the time. Archaeology is proving these things to be true. They are verifying the truth in an incredible way. Some of you may have remembered years ago, there was a Time magazine cover that came out, and on the cover it said, Is God Dead? This, this took place way back in 1966, but it launched a movement that was known as the God is Dead movement. And it was a pretty discouraging time because people begin to think that religion is irrelevant or that God is dead or that there's nothing to the Bible. Eight years later, in 1974, Dr. Gregory Boyd wrote a very interesting book called Letters to Skeptics. And in it, he makes this amazing statement. The Bible has time and time again proven itself to be archaeologically correct. Even Time Magazine's uh, article that it wrote in about biblical archaeology stated this, the Bible is often surprisingly accurate in historical particulars, more so than earlier generations of scholars ever suspected. Now, you know what? They had to hate putting that into that article. So from the people that brought us the God is Dead movement and the schizophrenia of the 60s and 70s in our culture, they went on to say in their own article, you know what, we hate to say it, but archaeology is lining up and providing proof that Scripture is true way more than any generations could have ever dreamed. So now we fast forward another 30 years to Dr. Walter Kaiser, who used to be the president of Gordon-Conwell, and he is one of the contributors to this particular Bible, and he says this, no previous generation has witnessed so high a degree of collaboration of biblical events, persons, and historical settings as we have during the past century of ongoing, successful archaeological exploration. 
He said, and this was what he wrote in 2005, he says, no generation previously can prove the things that we can prove today because of what we're finding. He goes on to say this, the quality, the quantity, and the relevancy of the artifacts and the epigraphical materials impinging on the story of the Bible from the ancient Near East has been so staggering that few have been able to incorporate it into one place. In other words, he's saying, there is so much archaeological evidence that for anybody to say that the Bible could not be true is standing on very thin ice because the proof has been there. So archaeological facts, as we discover them, are only verifying the Bible. So we have the manuscripts to stand as proof of Scripture. We have the archaeology evidence, but then there also moves into the P, which is the prophecy. Peter in the New Testament writes about the prophecies in the Old Testament in 2 Peter 1, 20-22. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. In other words, men did not make this up. Men were incapable of seeing the future with the level of accuracy that the prophets have done. That would be a paraphrase of everything that Paul said about Scripture being God-breathed before. So here's what we have to say about prophecy. How do we know that this is a proof of, of whether or not the Scripture is true? Well, this one is easy. Did it happen? Did everything that the prophet said, did it actually take place? And the answer is yes, over and over and over and over again. In fact, you find in the Old Testament, and I'm just going to mention this so that you can further study it, there are cities that are mentioned in the Old Testament that recently have been discovered through archaeology. And people were always saying, well, you know, that city, the Bible talks about it, but it doesn't exist. And not only are they finding the cities, they are finding coins in them with the name of the city exactly where the Bible said they would be. Not only about that, but it talks in, in prophecy about the destruction of Tyre and Sidon. It, it talks about the city of Babylon and the prophecies of that and the city of Jerusalem. All of these took place years and years and years before anything ever happened because they are true. There's also prophecies of world empires. Daniel was writing about these nations in his vision long before they ever came into existence. He describes the Babylonian Empire and their defeat by the Persian Empire and the prominence of the Greek Empire and the emergence of the Roman Empire during the time of Christ. These are stunning prophecies because the nations hadn't even been invented yet when he has these things. We look back and see not only were the prophecies true, but everything he said has happened. Then there's the prophecies about Jesus, the Messiah, of which I could do a whole series on. One of the most fascinating ones, however, comes from Psalm 22, which talks specifically about the crucifixion and what a crucified victim would experience, how they went through the dividing of the clothes and the hands and the feet being pierced. Here's what you need to know about that. All of that was written and prophesied hundreds of years before crucifixion ever came into existence. It was not even a form of death when this was prophesied. And then we know in Isaiah 53 the description that is given of Jesus and our crucified Savior. So when we look at the prophecies of Scripture, I want you to know as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have solid footing for why the Bible is reliable because of the manuscripts, because of the archaeology, and because of the prophecies that stand to be true.
And the Bible unpacks all of this for us and reveals to us it's God's plan. And then the last part of this map is this, S, which stands for statistics. How many of you love statistics? Any of you ever take statistics in college? I learned you can make a statistic say just about anything you want. We look at it statistically. How can all these prophecies be fulfilled? Especially the prophecies about Jesus being so specifically fulfilled centuries later in his life. Hank Hanegraaff, in his book, Defense of the Faith, writes this. It is statistically preposterous for any or all of the Bible's specific detailed prophecy could have been fulfilled through chance, through good guessing, or through deliberate deceit. How many of you have heard that before? Well, Jesus knew what the prophecies were, so he was going to try to fulfill them. The statistics of him being able to do this by deceit are astronomical, staggering statistically. So today I tell you as a follower of Jesus Christ, when people ask you, why should I believe the Bible? You now can say, let me give you a few reasons for you to study before you dismiss it. The Bible consists of 66 different books written over 1,600 years by at least 40 different authors in three different languages. What are the odds, statistically, that there would be one consistent message and that the whole thing describing the character of humanity and the character of God would all hang together in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior? If I could summarize the whole Bible from cover to cover in one sentence, it would be this. The message is consistent. The God who created us has acted to rescue us through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and it is verifiable for those of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning as we sing together?
Hallelujah. I believe that God is hearts this morning. I'm going to invite our elders, our deacons, our prayer team, if you'd please come and prepare yourself to be able to pray with people this morning. But I want to start with this. Maybe you've been a skeptic. Maybe you're saying, I, I like the music, I like the energy and the enthusiasm, but I'm really struggling with the truth of if the Bible is believable. I pray today that we were able just to provide a few little nuggets for you to begin to study. And believe me, we just did a quick flyover. But as you begin to dig into this, you're going to see the fingerprints of God all over this world. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I want you to know that your eternity depends upon this decision. <clears throat> so if you just close your eyes for a moment and bow your heads, if you're here today, I'm going to begin over on my right, your left. If you're here and you would like to receive Jesus as your Savior, what I'm going to do is ask that you would just look up at me and I'm going to catch your eye and I'm going to say, I agree with you. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I want to give you the opportunity to make that decision. And then as the service concludes, we have people here that would be willing to help you in these initial steps. So starting on your left, my right. Yes, sir, I agree with you. 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 Moving now into the, the left center here. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Moving over now into the right center. Is the Lord speaking? Is he knocking on the door of your heart? Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Moving now into the, into the far right and into the overflow. Is God knocking on the door of your heart today? He's done everything he can do to save your soul, but now it's the decision is yours. Yes, sir, I agree with you. So, Father, as we come this morning, we recognize that you are a pursuing God. We've sang about it this morning. You are running after us with your grace and mercy. So, Lord, I pray today, so grateful for those that today have said, I'm going to answer the door because Jesus is knocking. And I pray that the reality of your being through the work of the Holy Spirit right now, as they are inviting you into their life, that you would cleanse them all of the sin and all of the shame and everything that has bothered them and held them back. I pray that it would be forgiven in the name of Jesus and that they would be made a brand new creature right this moment because of the power of our living God. And Lord, we as a congregation, as we begin to dive into some of the, the archaeological truths and, and some of the history and some of the science of the Bible that gives us a solid footing to stand on, I pray that you would expand the abilities of our mind. You said if we lack understanding and wisdom, you'd give it to us. So Lord, we need that in this day and age. To know that what we believe and have been confirmed by the Holy Spirit in our heart, we are able to defend in a culture of skepticism and disbelief. So, Lord Jesus, enable us, I pray, through your Holy Spirit to stand firm, putting on the full armor of God so that we can be thoroughly equipped to give an answer for why you are alive and well and at work within our lives. I pray now, Lord, as we conclude this service, that you would go with us in strength and in power. May the joy of the Lord be our strength. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.